is a particular special morning for me as we come to celebrate the profession of faith of Joel Joshua Kenyon. This is our third in three weeks because God is good. As a minister of the gospel, I can confess this is a work of God's grace. There is nothing that I could do to make my son believe in Jesus. God revealed himself to Joel, and he has professed faith. That Jesus has saved him from his sins, and that he needs Jesus. He took the communicants class, and as I've explained over the past weeks, we looked at the story of Scripture. That God the Father, through God the Son, redeemed his people. And has sent the power of the Spirit to recreate a new humanity in the image of Christ so that we may glorify him. Joel has already received the sign of baptism. He was already a child of the covenant. Now we, his parents, we, his church body, and Joel are able to look back to his baptism and see God's faithfulness. Working. See the people of God nurturing. See the word of God sanctifying. If you believe in Jesus, the Bible commands you to be baptized. You and your children. As John said earlier, it commands us to lay claim of the covenant promises that are ours in Jesus. And now Joel is able to come to the Lord's Supper to taste the gospel, to hold, to smell, and to see the gospel for him, that he is a sinner saved by grace. At the table, the story of Scripture, that we need Jesus. We need a Savior. This is what we're celebrating this morning. As Joel is becoming a full member, laying claim to his covenant obligation to follow Jesus for the rest of his life. And we get to rejoice. So Joel, will you please come up? And I haven't done this, but can the elders that are here please come up also? He is offered in the gospel. Do you promise, with the help of God, the Holy Spirit, to follow and obey Jesus every day of your life and to struggle to fight against your sin? Yes. Do you promise to help our church to the best of your ability as a member of God's family with the special gifts that God has given you? Yes. Do you promise to follow and help the leadership of this church and to care for God's family? Yes. Joel Joshua Kenyon, a full member of God's covenant people. This morning from the Old Testament is Psalm 117. 
is found in your pew Bible on page 511. Hear the word of our Lord. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Our New Testament reading is from Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 13. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. You are dismissed to your classrooms. And as they go, this sermon this morning is a follow-up from the sermon I preached on Christmas Eve. My Christmas Eve sermon was entitled, The Trajectory of Jesus. This morning, as you see in your bulletins, my sermon is entitled, The Trajectory of God's People. Christmas Eve, we looked at the importance of of the Incarnation, that Jesus came with a particular mission in view to save his people from their sins. Today, I believe this psalm is a psalm that helps God's people identify who they are and what they are supposed to do as God's people. To praise the Lord. But before we begin, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, be with us this morning. For we can do nothing under our own strength that could rise before you and be an offering to you without the power of your Spirit working in us. Paul says that the Spirit lifts up our 
Lord, we ask for your spirit to be moving in us and through us. Healing all of us. Our bodies need saving just as much as our spirits need saving. For you have created us human, body, and soul. Lord, we pray for those amongst us who are sick, who are ill. Bring healing into them. We pray for Rick Abernathy's mother and for Jim Bennington. Lord, heal their bodies. For you formed them. You are Lord over them. We pray for Mr. Billy. Give him strength. May he be known for his hope that he has in Christ. We pray for the other churches in this county. Lord, may they preach the gospel. May every church this morning be reminded that they need Jesus. And that Jesus changes everything. Lord, we pray for our country. May we be a light to our own nation, as you have called us to be a light unto all nations. May we seek justice and mercy. May we be a servant to those around us. May we love our neighbor as ourselves. Lord, build up your church. Bless our missionaries, Alan Cochet and his family, and Mark Scheibe and his family. Lord, give them strength. Give them physical means as well as spiritual means to be a bedrock for your church. To disciple men and women as the body of Christ. May he receive all glory and honor. Amen. On November 19th, 1863, Abraham Lincoln spoke the famous words known as the Gettysburg Address. This speech consisted of 272 words, and it only lasted two minutes. It was given in dedication of a portion of the battlefield as a National Soldiers Cemetery for the 7,000 soldiers that died in that three-day battle earlier July that year. This speech might be one of the greatest speeches ever made by an American president. The first sentence, Lincoln presents the vision for the, for, from the founding fathers for our new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. 272 words. And that government of the people and by the people and for the people shall not perish from the earth. Psalm 117, 
is 13 words in original Hebrew, 28 in English. And within these few words, God's people dedicate their worship to God alone. They proclaim to one another who they are. They are people who glorify God. I concur with Charles Haddon Spurgeon that even though this psalm is few in words, it is extremely large in spirit. This is a psalm where the people of God dedicate, consecrate, and commit soul devotion to Yahweh, the covenant God. And this creation has so much to offer. There's so many good things in this world. And yet our hearts, what they do is they take us away from the one true thing that we are to praise. God alone. Our wills pull us Looking for something to satisfy. Looking for something to give us identity. Looking for something that we can put our flag down and say, this is what I stand for. Yet what scripture proclaims and this psalm proclaims is that we are the people of God. Called as saints, as children of the Most High King to come together and to get, dedicate our lives to God alone. Psalm 117 gives us a lens on how we should view our lives. This psalm commands us to be God-centric in everything that we do. Not our money, not our work, not our families, our friends, or even our feelings. And although all of these things are God-given things and good things, these are things that we have been called to participate in, to make thrive, to grow. But what sin does is it takes us away from our central vision that God receives the glory and the glory alone. We worship the creation rather than the creator. And as God's people who have seen God's great power in redemption. We are called to give glory to his name alone. We are called to dedicate our lives. To the worship of God alone. We are called to point others to glorify God alone. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. You are called to be a good parent. You are called to be a loving spouse. You are called to be a contributing single to our church. For those of you who are more mature than others, you are called to be a disciple of those who are less mature. This is what Paul says in Titus 2. Older men, 
are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in the faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderous or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so to train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to the other to their own husbands, that the word of God might not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourselves in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. But to do this, to be a good parent, to be a good spouse, to be a good discipler of Jesus, all of this comes from a heart filled with the praise of God alone. All of this comes only by someone who can be dedicated to God alone, for he gives us the strength to do what we are called to do. God is our primary focus, glorifying the Father through the Son, by the Spirit. This is our primary calling, reminding one another, exhorting one another, who we are. We are the people of God that believe this. We are the people of God who really believe this. We aren't paying lip service to some God so that we get what we want. Or that we might feel good about ourselves. We're not saying these words and going through these motions to collect some afterlife life insurance. We are people of the word, proclaiming the glory of the creator who loves us and has redeemed us in Christ. Praise the Lord. All nations extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love towards us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. As we look at this psalm, I want us to see three very important things that God is teaching us, his people. I want us to see God's love, God's faithfulness, and God's goal. God's love, God's faithfulness, and God's goal. As we first look at God's love, you might notice that we're beginning in verse 2 rather than verse 1. And I do this because I want us to look at the why question first. Why do we dedicate our lives to praise God alone? Why do we believe? Why are we here doing what we are doing? In 1984, Tina Turner's Grammy Award-hitting song entitled Private Dancer puts puts the question to us, what's love got to do with it? What's love got to do with it? What's love but a second-hand emotion? 
What's love got to do with it? Got to do with it. Who needs a heart when the heart can be broken? This song, based upon a very fluid understanding of what love actually is, it actually isn't even about love. The only things that connect this song to this psalm is the word love. Our culture has created this very skewed view of what love actually looks like. For Tina Turner, it's a physical attraction to another human being. For others, love is boundless. It's never ceasing. It has no rules. But is this the love that we see in Scripture? Is this the loving kindness that we see of God the Father in Jesus the Son? How does he love us? Why does he love us? Answer, because he has chosen to love us. There's nothing in us innately greater than anyone else, rather than he has chosen to love us. This word for love is the Hebrew word Hesed. And Hesed love combines two ideas love and commitment. It is setting of the will to love, regardless of how one responds to it and regardless of how one feels because of it. The love still remains. As Paul Miller explains in his book, A Loving Life, the nature of Hesed love is to limit the life and limit the person. It strips our ego. It draws us to our union with Christ, tasting God in loving activity. We get to know who God is. Yahweh, through the act of love. The best part of love is getting to know the person. We've lost that in our culture. We want to define what love is rather than allowing Scripture to define what love is. It's giving yourself up for somebody else. It's putting others' needs before yourself. R.C. Sproul believes the best translation of Hesed love is loyal Love. He says God loves his people genuinely, immutably, loyally. Both the love and the loyal loyalty are, of course, tightly bound. This is just as one cannot love capriciously or impulsively, so one cannot loyal, loyalty love without their character involved. God is for his people, and he will never cease to be there for his people. He goes on and says, our calling is to reflect that reality. Our loyalty and our love, grounded in our loyal love towards him, 
who loved us first ought to be toward both him and to the fellow believer. Too often we fail at one of these. Either we put our love of God first and foremost and then forget about loving our neighbor as ourselves, or we love our neighbor first, neglecting the love of God the Father first. And I want to be careful here as I want to add something to what R.C. says. Because here, R.C. Sproul says we need vertical love, we need a horizontal love toward our fellow believer. And this is absolutely true. And this is something that we do here at the Lord's Supper. When we come and feed upon Christ, we are communing with God through Jesus and the Holy Spirit. But we also come to this table because we commune with one another. This is a community table. But what I think... How I think R.C. has limited his definition is that he speaks of only loving our fellow believer with this Hesed love. And I think it needs to go much further than that. I think it needs to go to our neighbor. Our ungodly, unchristian, secular thinking neighbor. Because what Jesus says is that they will know us how we love. Jesus said, Jesus summed up the two tables of the law. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. We are supposed to love God first and then love all people second. And yes, of course, there are different degrees of loyalty. I call you to have a degree of loyalty to your church family, to your Loyal family, your kin, first. But we are called to love nonetheless. Do you remember the section in Luke's gospel where Jesus is teaching the Pharisees about loving their neighbor? The lawyer, the lawyer is trying to shrink the law. He's trying to shrink the amount of people that he must love. And Jesus says no. I'm going to expand your view of who you think your neighbor is. This Hesed love, love that is not merely a term or an idea that we have. It is a life-giving love. It is a life-giving sacrifice. It is shown through reality. It is shown in our stories. It is shown by our actions. It is not something we just say. It is something that we do. And this is an obligation that was placed on God's people in the Old Testament as well. In Micah 6, 8, he is, Who has told you, O man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness? Hesed love. And to walk humbly with your God. Hesed love is loving kindness. We are called to a loyal love. 
This is what Paul says in Romans 5. This is what loyal love looks like. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one scarcely dies for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one who dare even die. But God shows his love for us, and that we, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus is the incarnation of Hesed love. Hesed love can only be found in Jesus. God in the flesh. God showed his people how he loved them by sending Jesus. God showed his people that he loved them by giving them great signs and leading them out of Egypt. Turn with me in your Bibles or your pew Bibles. And pew, your pew Bibles is page 520 to Psalm 136. This is a historical psalm where God's people came to sing of the great things that God had done for them. And I think the psalm in itself proves the point I'm trying to make. Psalm 136, verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. This is his nature. He is a God who is loving. Now go down to verse 10. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, for his steadfast love endures forever. And brought Israel out from among them. His steadfast love endures forever. With a strong hand and an outreached arm. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea into two. For his steadfast love endures forever. And made Israel pass through the midst. From, for his steadfast love endures forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and his hosts in the Red Sea. For his steadfast love endures forever. For him who led the people through the wilderness. For his steadfast love endures forever. This is his nature. He is loving and he shows us his love through true action, through doing. God shows his love. This is why the people of God are supposed to praise the name of God. Because God has shown his love for his people. God has acted in love on our behalf, even when we don't deserve it. So that we might have life. This is why he loved us. And what does this love enable us to do? Well, in Romans 5.10, I think we get an answer. In verses 10 to 11, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We rejoice in God because Jesus has saved us. We rejoice because the love of Christ 
enables us to love our neighbor as ourselves. We receive this great love of God in Christ by faith. Through the outpouring of the Spirit into our lives, are we able to turn and glorify Jesus, who points us to glorify the Father. We praise Jesus because we are first recipients of God's Hesed love. And our first response should be, praise him. Praise the Lord. Praise him. We worship because of God's love, and we worship because of God's faithfulness. We are called to worship God and to praise him because God has been faithful to his people. This is what it says in verse 2. For the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. God's faithfulness, however, cannot be separated from his love. Both acts of his faithfulness and his love are pictures of his divine grace. If you recall the constant refrain that we use in our worship, it's Exodus 36 34 verses 6 to 7. And in my Bible, I have a little blue tab. I don't know if you can see it. It's the only tab I have in my Bible. And it's on Exodus 34 verses 6 through 7. And in the margins of Exodus 34, 6 through 7, I have this written. The Old Testament does not make sense without these verses. Let us go and read Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. If you believe this to be true, if you believe in Scripture, Exodus 34, 6 and 7 is a picture of who God is. He is loving and he is faithful to his people because he is their God. This verse is the Lotus Classicus of God's character. He is, he is merciful. He is gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in hesed love and faithfulness. Do you believe that this is true about your God? Because if you don't, you will not want to worship him. But if this is who you believe God is, you have no choice than to praise his name, for he is gracious. God is reliable. God is stable. God is continually the same. God is truth. These are all different words to, dis- to define faithfulness. This word in Psalm 117 could be translated any of those words. Reliable, stable, 
truthful. But, but listen to this. In Exodus 34, we just read 6 and 7. Listen to what verse 8 says. And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped. The character of God can do no other than to cause the people of God to worship their God. This is our proper response to God's covenant faithfulness. Scripture makes that clear. To glorify God. And we have a fuller sense of God's covenant faithfulness in Jesus. We just saw that Jesus is the picture of God's Hesed love. Well, Jesus is also the picture of God's faithfulness. He is the promised one. He is the seed that we've been waiting for since Genesis. He is the one that is going to bless the nations that we've been waiting for since Genesis. He is the covenant promise to Abraham that he will bless the nations. Every single promise is a yes and amen in Jesus. This is why we sing. This is the foundation that establishes our worship. We praise the Lord because he's faithful in Jesus. I found it interesting as I looked this word for faithfulness and this word for truth in the New Testament, and it's used 22 times by the Apostle John in his Gospels and his Epistles. But it's also used by Matthew and Luke. And this theme of worship actually bookends the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. Now, you you must remember, Matthew and Luke are the two Gospels that speak of Jesus' birth and resurrection. In Matthew 2, three times worship is described as the intent of the wise men. This is why they came, to worship Jesus. In Matthew 28, the last chapter in Matthew, two times we see the disciples worshiping Jesus. In Luke 2, Anna worshiped Jesus. In Luke 24, the last chapter of Luke, they worshiped Jesus. We need to be very careful about this. Because what does the second commandment say? You are not to worship anyone but Yahweh. Yet the Bible is telling us that these people worshipped Jesus. Because he is the picture of faithfulness and love. This psalm teaches us about God's love. God's hesed love and faithfulness are shown in Jesus. And finally, this psalm teaches us about God's goal for his people. For that, we need to go back to verse 1. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. Ligon Duncan has a very imaginative illustration for this point. And he says this, Imagine that we are a local church almost 2,000 years ago, and we're gathered in someone's home in Rome. 
and we are reading a letter of a new teacher teaching about a very significant and relevant theological problem in our current situation. Our local church is made up of two types of people, Jewish believers and non-Jewish believers living in Rome, who have one faith, one Lord, one baptism. And these Jewish believers are struggling because Though they believe that Jesus is the Messiah, though they believe that no one can be saved in any other name but Jesus, for 1,400 years they have been distinct from the nations. They have ceremonial laws that enables them to have meals because of the Gentiles' uncleanliness. Yet now they are being taught by this teacher that they need not only They need not but to only accept the Gentiles as brothers and sisters. And get this, equal heirs of the covenant. They have been promised for 1,400 years that they are the recipients of God's promises. And now they are dealing with having to share those promises with other people. I don't know about you, but that might be pretty hard. And the Gentile believers are trying to figure out how they're to relate to these Jewish believers who have a hard time sitting at the table with them. Now, if you don't know, I've just described to you what is happening in the book of Romans, chapter 15. And what Paul does is he points the believers in Rome to Psalm 117. This is what he says, as we read earlier. In verse four, for whatever, or yes, verse four, whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ, that together you may with one voice glorify God, the father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what he says. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God in his mercy. And then in verse 11, he quotes Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. God's goal is that we might glorify him and enjoy him forever. God's goal is that through his loving kindness, through his covenant faithfulness, the nations will come to glorify him. And our goal is to bring the nations in through loving them, through showing our only devotion to God the Father Almighty. We are called to exclusive worship. As we go into the new year, 
what does this look like for you? How do we reshape our habits? How do we reshape our tendencies to say, praise the Lord? You might find this interesting, but in our first song we sang, praise him. Hallelujah. And if you know anything about Hebrew, which I'm not expecting any of you to, if you do, there's no reason for you to. But the phrase, praise the Lord, is actually pronounced in Hebrew, hallelujah. Hallelujah is the transliteration of the Hebrew word, which means praise the Lord. So if you look at your bulletin, every time you sing hallelujah, we are saying praise the Lord. Because what Christ has done for us. We are able to praise the Lord. How does this shape your new year? How do you think about what praising the name of the Lord looks like? How does praising Jesus reorient your work, your parenting, the way that you treat your waiter at a restaurant? What is man's chief end? to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, that we might dedicate our lives to Christ alone. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Hallelujah, God loves his people continually. Hallelujah, the Lord's faithfulness towards us is eternal in Jesus Christ. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah to the King eternal. All glory be to Christ. And this is what John envisioned in Romans in Revelation chapter 7. And as I looked and beheld a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, were singing, Hallelujah. Jesus changes everything. And the first change is that we praise the Lord. Please pray with me.